And I want to go to the book of Esther. And I just want to read a few verses of the ones that I've uh, signed for the scripture reading. Then we're going to have prayer and go into our discourse. Now, here it says in Esther, in Esther chapter 4, and I want to look particularly at verse 16, Esther chapter 4, in verse 16, and notice what it says, and this is uh, Esther talking to him give some advice to Mordecai. He said, go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Let us pray. Eternal Father, and we live in a world, O oh, Heavenly Father, that is similar to that of Esther and Mordecai. Outside, yeah. And when we look all over the nation, O oh, Father, we would ask that as we see the atrocities, O oh, Heavenly Father, of those who are supposed to be keeping law and taking us out. That the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, may continue to keep us, for we cannot keep ourselves. So we ask that you would intervene into the events of men and women as you did in the empire of the Persians when Mordecai and Esther was down there. To be able to let us know, Lord, that there's deliverance coming from somewhere. And we know that when it comes to you, come from you, O Father, that it'll be exactly what we need. So as we go into your word, we ask that you would open our hearts. And as you open our hearts, maybe we receive the things, Lord, that you have to give. And help us, so Heavenly Father, with the mental mouth that we may eat the things, Lord, that has been given and digested well. And may it be the spiritual nutrients that we need in order to have the physical frame and the spiritual strength to be able to accomplish the task that you have given. We ask that you would continue to bless the pastor, Bless First Lady of the church. Most of all, bless this fine congregation that the power of the Holy Spirit may bless both the community as well as living water. That the power of the Holy Ghost may take both of these churches and bathe them in the olive oil of the Holy Spirit, O Heavenly Father, and give them the Holy Ghost to accomplish the task that you have given. Now, Father, as we open your word, open our hearts to receive that which you have to give. And when you have done for us that which we ask, we'll give your name the praise. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. And amen. Amen. You know, in these days that we live in, uh, I know sometimes we, we're used to them short sermons like they do on the mass. When they, once they had mass, they said what they have to do and they out of there. But let me tell you, beloved, uh, we don't have nowhere to go, and I don't have nowhere to go, so we may as well just tap and hear what he can say. Amen. Amen. I've chosen to talk to you uh, about what I've entitled A Secret Shout. A Secret Shout. When I read in the book of Esther, it's a fascinating book. Uh, we find that 
even the word of God is not even mentioned, not one time in the book of Esther, is hidden. And we find that Esther, she hid herself. Instead of using Hadassah, she began to use Esther as her name in the Persian Empire. And we find Mordecai, he was hiding his Jewishness. And when we look and we see that many of the things they wanted to do, they had to hide their plans. So when you have to hide everything, you can't walk by sight, you got to walk by faith. And this is what they found themselves doing. And there's a lot of hiding in the book of Esther. And we want to talk about what we have entitled a secret shout. Now our first point that we want to deal with, we want to look in Esther chapter two. Why don't you turn there in your Bibles with me? Now, I used to say sometime in the churches that if you have your Bibles, uh, just hold it up. Hold your Bible up because we're going, we're going back to school. All right. I see Brother Pastor got his Bible. I got my Bible, and we trust that you have. I see your Bible. Good, good. Because we will be in the Bible. Okay. Now, I want you to turn with me in Esther chapter 2 and verse 10. And notice what verse 10 says. It says, and Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Okay, so the first point, if you're writing this down, the first point we want to deal with is a secret science. Hmm. A secret science. Now, because of all this strangeness in the Persian Empire, Mordecai thought it best for Esther to conceal her identity. What he was teaching was the science of secrecy. Most of us didn't learn this science of secrecy as we matriculated through grade school, high school, junior college, and college and the university. We were never taught that science. However, we learned this science from home. We as a people have been practicing the science of the secret science for a long time. I know when I was growing up, uh, they make it clear in the house. They say, boy, you don't go out in the street and tell other people what's going on in the house. That's a secret science. Mm -hmm. yeah. yes, yeah. And if you reveal anything going on in the house, you, know, you might get it where you sit down at. Mm. However, when we learn this science, we recognize that sometimes it's unhealthy to go through an abusive family, so you have to reveal things, but we're looking at this somewhat from the positive side. We, we were told this, and whatever uh, goes on in behind closed doors must stay behind closed doors, even though society tells us differently. And it's a healthy thing to do so. Yet, we know that this same society which tells us to reveal all of the abuse that goes on in our homes is the same society that oppresses people like Haman. 
Now we read here in Esther chapter 2 and verse 5 and 6. Notice what it says here. In verse 5 it says, Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of uh, Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. And then it goes on in verse 6 to says, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So when Mordecai was teaching Esther the science of secrecy, he was giving her a course in being a stranger 101. Most of the courses we are taught in our educational pursuit is how to win friends and influence people. We must also learn how to lose friends and reject people. We are taught how to tear down walls and open up our vulnerabilities. We should also be taught how to construct walls Mm -hmm. to conceal our insecurities. Mm -hmm. Solomon tells us in a number of places uh, concerning this particular scenario. Let us turn to uh, the book of Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs. And, and when we turn to the book of Proverbs, we want to look at chapter 11, Proverbs 11. So here in, in Proverbs 11, we're looking at verse 13, and here it says, a talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Okay, so Solomon is talking about you don't you don't need to talk too much, you don't need to reveal too much. Okay, and then when you look in Proverbs the twentieth chapter, in verse nineteen, notice what it says. It says here in verse nineteen of the twentieth chapter, he that goeth about as a talebearer bearer. Reveal his secrets, therefore, meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. Mm. Then you go to Proverbs chapter 25, and we look at verse number nine. It says, It says, Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself, and discover not a secret to another. In other words, you can't tell some people everything about yourself. You can't be a telltale like Joseph when he was telling on his brothers over and over and they got tired of him. They wanted to take him out. Another person should not know everything about us that we are so transparent that they can see right through us. When a person can see right through you, you're a shallow person. They, sh- they shouldn't be able to see that. But not until we get to know an individual and what they are and what they're about that you can reveal certain things. So we need to learn how to be strangers. You can't be friends with everybody because everybody don't have your best interests at hand. I've seen people reveal everything about them, and then by the time you look around and on Facebook, they got all your stuff out there, and your your employee is checking their Facebooks, and he's looking, 
And when you get on your job, he said, you're going to have to leave this job because I got too much information on you. We got to learn how to reveal ourselves to people that have our best interests at hand. Now, we want to go to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Now, scripture lesson, Esther chapter 4. And this time, in Esther chapter 4, we want to go to uh, verse 15. It says, then Esther bade, then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Okay. In other words, Mordecai is telling us some stuff that happened in the empire, and you're going to have to deal with this, Esther. Okay. And he had already told Esther to stay undercover. Don't, don't reveal anything about you. And can you imagine that here she is married to Ahasuerus, the king of the empire, and he didn't know too much about Esther. And so my next point that we're dealing with outside of a secret science, now we're dealing with a secret society. Now, when we deal with a secret society, if one is familiar with the story of Hadessa, whose name was changed to Esther, one would know that she was accustomed to receiving instructions and orders from Mordecai, not Mordecai from her. From the day that she and Mordecai came into Persian, the Persian Empire, she was being instructed by him, not her instructing him. So when we read here in Esther 2.10, it says, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. In other words, he was saying, Esther, we're living in a secret society. The, the old saying goes that if you can't take orders, then don't give no orders. But Esther had learned how to take orders from Mordecai. And now we find in a peculiar situation that when they got in trouble, Mordecai came to her and she had to give him some instructions. So Esther was a good learner. Therefore, she could be a good teacher. A good teacher can learn from one's people. And when you look at the seventh verse of the second chapter, it says, and he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and, he, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So we can see he raised her from a child, and this is why she no doubt was obedient to her. It's like the old saying goes that it's hard to teach someone something when they're grown. And if you don't bend the tree while it's young, once it gets up, it's hard to bend that tree. And he had taught her well. And we must perceive that when we are in a strange place with a strange people, it's going to be a strange problem. We must learn that when we're in a strange land with a strange language, it's going to be a strange life. We must know that when we're in a strange kingdom with a strange king, 
is going to be a strange kin- kinship. We must consider that when we are in a strange country, we're going to have a strange conversation and there's going to be a strange circumstances. We must notice that when we are in a strange nation with a strange neighbors, there are going to be some strange needs. A strange place isn't necessarily an unfamiliar place, but a place where you aren't wanted. A strange people isn't necessarily your enemy, but a person who doesn't care for you. A strange language isn't necessarily a foreign language, but any language which puts you down. A strange nation isn't necessary, one that is in a distant land, but a nation that suppresses you with a heavy hand. A strange country isn't necessary, one that is far away in time and space, but one that corrupts the human race. Whatever, whenever a people is enslaved by another people, They are generally mistreated, walked over, looked upon as outcasts, and kicked to the curb. The way Mordecai and Esther entered into Persia was not by citizenship, not by nationality, not by immigrant status, nor through naturalization. They entered in as enslaved people. We came to this world of America as enslaved people, and they're going to shoot us down and knock us down because they do not see us as citizens here. And we notice what it says in verse 6. Esther 2, 6 says, it says here in the latter part of the verse, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. They were captives. When you come into a country as a captive, they got two different laws for you. They got one for them and one for us. They came by way of captivity. Whenever we are brought into another nation by captivity, we can't expect the same treatment as a person who goes through naturalization. There's always going to be a problem with that. It shouldn't be, but it is. We have been in this country approximately 400 years or better, yet still talking about no justice, no peace, and Black Lives Matter. While our forefathers may have been brought here on slave ships, we who were born here are treated like chattel, which is nothing more than a piece of material property that can be mistreated, disregarded at will. This is why we have the George Floyd and Derek Chauvin uh, situation. This society don't see other ethnics as us, but them. It's cops against the community of color. It's detectives against the downtrodden. It's the government against the good and the godly is judges against justice and judgment is policemen against the people's privacy. I say, when you come in like Esther and Mordecai, you cannot expect, even if you did expect it, you wouldn't get it. When we have to conceal our identity because we may be taken advantage of because of our true heritage, society in part has turned its back on the back on, 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 on the people of color and cut corners on its constitution 
and its courtrooms are crowded with more legal lies than there is crime in the community and stealing in the streets. The nation that was a that has a different set of laws for us than they do for them. If this nation is telling the truth about what it's doing, it should be willing to take a polygraph test and find out if they're liars or not. So when we look at this nation, it is telling us that that they are teaching us fair and just and treating us this way, but yet we see different. Their rhetoric is saying one thing, their behavior is another. They're talking the talk, but not walking the walk. This political system should take a lie detective test to see if they are fibbing, and all of our lawyers should take a lie detective test to see if they are lying. Most of the cases with the plea bargains and all of this stuff, it is nothing but fabrications. What do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place? What do we do when we jump out of the frying pan into the fire? What do we do when we run away from a lion and run into a bear? What do we do when we can't go backward and can't go forward? What do we do when our people are put down and our persecutors are in control? What do we do when we learn to build a wall between a brother and a bully and we find ourselves back, our backs against the wall? What do we do when society slaps us in the face and say, take it or leave it, and if you don't like it, go back to where you came from, and where you came from is the place where they are telling you to go back to. You were born here. We, what do we do when we are oppressed for being obedient and worship and whipped for being wrong? What do we do when the glass is half empty and half full? What do we do when our justice system is slanted and our educational system is not equal? What do we do when we find ourselves not only down but out? What do we do when there's no food in the pantry and no money in the bank? What do we do when we are cheated out of our money on our mortgage and ripped off if we rent? What do we do if we can't make a living with our business and we can't make a livelihood by laboring for someone else? When the odds are against us and we are outnumbered 10 to 1, we have to do what Esther did. What did Esther do? She had to look to a power that was higher than her. Now we find that when we look at society, it is structured in such a way, it's not equal for everybody. We find that the government, which allows certain people to be mistreated, hides behind a smoke screen. So when we look at Esther chapter three and verses one and two, 
Here we are told, it said, after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, and advance him and set his seat above all the princes that was with him and all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and, and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Now, we talked about a secret science, a secret society. Now we're talking about a secret smokescreen, a secret smokescreen. We know what a smokescreen is. A smokescreen is a, a, a figurative language or a symbolical language is saying that somebody is hiding behind something that is not real. So we want to look at uh, uh, the smoke screen. <clears throat> what we are experiencing in this chapter is that Haman is being introduced to us. And when he was introduced to us, the king had lifted this man up and put him in a high position. Matter of fact, he was the second in rulership to King Ahasuerus. And upon his introduction, there is a conflict between him and Mordecai. We are told from the narrative that this conflict that they were feuding over is that Mordecai didn't bow to Haman at the king's gate when he was passing. You see, you got a lot of yes, yes people that they do anything that the top officials say do. But Mordecai was not a yes man. And that's what's probably wrong with, with what's going on today. We got too many yes folk. Every time somebody in a high position or a movie star or celebrity say, you do something, you jump and do it. And so he recognized that Mordecai was not a yes man. Therefore, our first point we would like to deal with in this secret smokescreen is the fact that Mordecai didn't bow to this man. So our first uh, look we would like to deal with this with is what we refer, refer to as the secret smoke screen. When I was growing up, when a person told a lie, we would call that telling a story. I don't know why. I, I, I guess some of y'all from old school, y'all know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, you come up and, and, and your brother, your sisters didn't tell the truth. And you said, mommy, mommy, they told a story. Mama, they told a story. And, and mama called you in. She, she said, son, or boy, or girl, don't you be out there telling no stories. Yeah. That's what they call a lie, a story back then. Mm -hmm. And everybody got their story. Come on, say amen. Haman had his story. And what was his story? His story was when I when when, when he uh, came to the gate, Haman didn't bow. He got all infuriated about that. So this first story is very crucial in a chain of events leading up to the main story. He is concealing. See, there's a story behind the smokescreen. But Haman is not going to tell you the story. Haman is going to use a smokescreen to try to get rid of the Jewish people. Now, when you look at the first one, uh, when 
we dig into Haman's first story, it is concerning Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. Okay. See, some people are like this. If they tell you to jump, they want you to jump. And some people, they are so in with the system, they don't even listen to Elohim's word. They, they don't even listen to logic or reason. They just know if the governor said it or the president said it or if anybody in authority said it, if a movie star said it, they just jump to it. And some people are so into uh, when authority says something, whether it's right or wrong, they ask them, they begin to jump. And not only do they jump, but they're so into society that when they jump up in the air, they even ask the authorities, when can I come down? Now, the second story, which goes into the smoke screen, which is adjacent to the first, is that the narrative says that King Ahasuerus gave Haman a promotion over all of the princes that were with him. Oftentimes, when an individual or individuals are promoted on a job or in an organization, sometimes they get the big head. They feel that everybody should bow down to them, thinking that the whole world revolves around them because they got a little position and a higher authority and more salary. They feel that you, you, you subject to me. You know, they always say if you give a person a little authority, they'll take over the whole thing. And that everybody should bend and bow to Haman, such an attitude as this, can cause one's head to swell and to be overbearing and dictatorial with others. Now, the third, the third, uh, the third story in the smoke screen is this. We turn to uh, the third chapter of Esther in verse two. And it speaks about, in this verse, that Ahasuerus, the king, who promoted him and commanded this type of behavior toward Haman. So naturally, if the king said, said it, then if Haman doesn't, then if uh, Mordecai doesn't obey what the king says about bowing to Haman, then they look at Mordecai and say, you out of order. I must agree that this third issue also has some far-reaching consequences. Notice what it says in Esther 3.3. 3. It said, then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, why transgressest thou the king's commandment? In other words, when you didn't bow to Haman, you were violating what the king said. So if you violate what the king said, then... Mordecai, you need to straighten up. The king said this, not, not Haman. So here we see a dichotomy that the king's servant is trying to get over to Mordecai. Now, notice what takes place in verse 4. Now, let's notice what happens in verse 4. It said, now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman, they said, look here, Haman, we've been talking to the brother, but the brother, he won't listen to us. He said, why don't you go and talk to him? And so the Bible further said, 
Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Yeah. So Mordecai looked at that thing and he said he, he knew that he was a Jew. Okay. Now, it came to pass when the servants had talked to Mordecai and then Haman had, had spoken with him that he found out who he was. Mm. He was a man, passing a man every day and didn't know who he was. That says something about us, don't it? We can pass that person standing by the freeway begging for money every day. We can pass, and we don't know who he is. We never stopped to talk to him and found out why he's on the streets. So here, Haman walking past this man. You don't know who he is. And now he finds out he's a Jew. And notice what verse 5 says. It says, and when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Okay. So now this brings in the fourth story, which is Mordecai's Jewishness. In verse 5, we find that Haman continues to infuriate with, to be infuriated with Mordecai not bowing. So in verse 6, it says, and he felt scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now, notice this. Notice this. Here, the Bible says in verse 6, he felt scorn to lay hands on Mordecai. In other words, the only person he really wanted to get rid of was Mordecai. But then when he learned that he was a Jew, he wanted to get rid of all the Jews. So when we look at verse 6, there is somewhat of a twist in events. Haman now focuses upon all of the Jews rather than one Jew. He was thinking about taking Mordecai out by himself, but upon learning about Mordecai's people, the Jews, he broadens the scope to take out and to destroy all Jews throughout the whole empire of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. This brings us to Haman's fifth issue, which is the Jewish hatred. Haman was so inflamed by Jewish hatred. Notice how Haman's re relationship to the Jews is portrayed in the behavior of his family and other people. It refers to them as the enemies of the Jews. And when you look at Esther chapter 7, verse 6, it talks about the adversary and the enemy. In Esther 8.13, this talks about the Jews being their enemies. In Esther 9.1, it speaks about enemies of the Jews. In Esther 9.5, it speaks about the Jews' enemies. In Esther 9.16, it speaks about the Jews as being their enemies. In Esther 9.22, it speaks about the Jews being their enemies. In other words, what you were looking at was a smokescreen. That's all it was, a smokescreen. Notice what Haman says in verses 
8 and 3. In verses 8 of the third uh, of the third chapter, in verse 8, he says, And Haman said unto the king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws, therefore it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. And then in the same chapter, in verse 3, notice what it says. It says, Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandments? So in other words, when you look at this scenario, Haman had put this thing together that he made it seem like the king was behind his pot. You know, that man know how to work a smoke screen. He said, you, don't, you, you, you set this thing up, and now... We are telling you, you got some people in your jurisdiction that are not even following your commandments. And Haman said to the king of Hazarus, there is a certain people scattered abroad. They disperse all over your empire, your province, your kingdom, and their laws are different. And this particular thing brings us to the sixth story, which is a critical piece. This is so critical in two ways, okay? So, well, he said, if a people... A, if a people living in someone else's kingdom has a set of laws different from that of the kingdom therein, this would certainly cause a conflict within the government sooner or later. For this is the very reason why Mordecai didn't bow to Haman. Moreover, when Haman related this to Ahasuerus, the king said that he sold the king on this idea of exterminating the Jews and to get rid of all of them in his, in his empire. And B, when the laws of a people are different from those of the kingdom in which they are in, those having these diverse laws are put in a band when it comes to freely serving their Elohim. Consequently, there could be no peace in the king's if the king's laws aren't beneficial to the Jews and the Jews' laws are not beneficial to the kingdom. All these stories are vocal and, ex and expressive. Therefore, they can't be silent issues. Something that is secret and silent is neither known or heard, neither seen nor heard. All of the issues we have just mentioned were articulated. So what was the real problem? These stories were only a smokescreen to hide the real truth. He talked about the man's religion. He talked about the laws that the man was breaking. And all of this stuff and all of those stories within the smokescreen did not really get to the real issue. So when, when we read about the various scenarios which Haman gave for not wanting Mordecai and the Jews in a hazardous empire. However, these stories weren't the real truth. They were only fabrications to hide the real story behind his accusations. Let us see if we can discover what the real story is. You see, a lot of times people come to you with all types of problems and, and stuff but they don't tell you what the real issue is. 
So we want to find out what the real issue is. So when we read in, 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 in Esther 3, 3, 5, it says, And when Haman saw that the Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Okay. Okay, let's find out why he was so outrageous. So our, so our, our, our fourth point is a, is a secret silence. See, this, this, is, this is what's going to bring out really what, what, what Haman's problem was. See, the other stuff was on the periphery. That's, that's all that was. He didn't really get to the heart of what his really problem is. And that's what's wrong with the church today. A lot of people frustrated and, 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 and messed up. And with this coronavirus and everybody's in the house and we're getting all frustrated with one another, but we're not telling what the real problem is. We got to go to the real problem. And that's, a, that's what you call the secret silence, the secret silence. So here we find that Haman is in a rage because everybody except Mordecai is bowing down to him in the king's gate. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. That if you had 100 people and 99 of them gave you positive feedback and only one gave you negative feedback, we have a tendency to look over all of the 99 and we'll look at the negative one. And this is what Haman did. When we speak in terms of a secret silence, it is something that is bothering us, but we don't say anything about what it is. It is something pinned up in us that we don't express. Another way of speaking about a secret silence is to refer to it as suffering in silence. There was something in the soul of Haman that couldn't rest because of Mordecai. One would naturally think that the reason why his soul couldn't rest and be at peace is because Mordecai's refusal to bow to him. However, let us cut through the chase and cut through all of the stories of the smoke scheme to unmask the real story. If you read the account of this story as recorded in the book of Esther, if one isn't astute to the details of the narrative, one might miss the intent of the book. As a matter of fact, in reading about the situation, one can easily gloss over the real issue as we sometimes do. In order to magnify this story, let us examine both Mordecai and Esther's lineage along with, with Haman. Yeah. See, we're trying to get to the real thing of really why Haman was doing this stuff. Now you can read the book of Esther over and over and you'll, you'll read something new in there. Now, when we look at the, the, the lineage of Mordecai and Esther and Haman, we're going to see something. Now, we notice in chapter 2, in verses 5 to 7, and that's when they were coming into the Persian Empire. And what we want to notice about these passages is that they point out Mordecai and Esther's family tree. Let us notice the particular individuals in their family tree. 
What we observe is that Mordecai's father, well, let us read it. In verse 5, it says, Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Okay. So that, 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 that gives somewhat of the family who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Esther, or Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. So what we are seeing is her lineage. What we observe is that Mordecai's father was Jair, and Jair's brother had a daughter named Hadassah, to whom they call Esther. Therefore, in actuality, Mordecai and Esther was actually cousins. That's what they were. They were cousins. Esther's father and mother had deceased, and Mordecai raised her as his own daughter. Moreover, also, Jair, Mordecai's father, was the son of Shimei, and Shimei's father was Kish, and Kish was a Benjamite. Now, let us observe Haman's family. And when we look at his family tree, we notice his family tree is found in Esther chapter 3 and verse 1. And here it says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the Agite, the Agite, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. But the point that we're looking at is that we observe his family tree. However, as it goes on to give us some of his family lineage, it says that Haman was the son of Hamadatha, and it goes on to point out that Hamadatha was a Agagite. He was an Agagite. What I want us to notice is that the writer of the book of Esther is strongly hinting at what Haman's secret silence is all about. You can't miss it. It stands out almost like the orange breath on a robin. You can't miss it. The writer is telling you what is going on with his secret silence. Like I have said earlier, if we are astute, we could miss it. Notice what we find in the book of Esther in the following verses. The verses all point out that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, in Esther 3.1, it says, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. In Esther 3.10, it says, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. In Esther 8.5, it says, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. In Esther 9.24, it points out, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. In other words, the, the, the author is... It's saying, yes, what Haman was doing was hidden, but I'm trying to give you some hints as to why he's doing what he's doing. But I can't write it 
I can't spell everything out. In other words, uh, some people you have to spell everything out, but the writer is saying, I can't spell it all out. You must be able to see the forest for the trees, but some people can't see the forest for the trees. If Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, then the question we need to consider at this juxtaposition is, who is an Agagite? We know that an Agagite is the name of a people. Therefore, these people are named after a person named Agag. Just as the people of Israel are called Israelites, and Mordecai's people are called Benjamites because they were of the family of Benjamin. So we asked another pertinent question, who is Agag? Who is Agag? Now the first mentioning of Agag is found in Numbers 24 seven. However, what we are dealing with in 1 Samuel 15, there is a number of mentionings regarding uh, uh, Agag as we deal with the time of Samuel. So let us turn to the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. And what we're trying to do is get the, what is the secret silence that is bothering Haman? So here we read in 1 Samuel 15, 8, notice what it says. It said, and he took Agag the king and the Amalekites alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9 says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refused, they destroyed. And then we jump down to verse 20. It says, And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of Jehoah and have gone the way which Jehoah sent me and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. And then we go over to 1532. Then said Samuel, bring ye hither to me Agag, the king, and of the Amalekites, and Agag came unto him delicately, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As thy sword has made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewn Agag in pieces before Yehoah in Gilgal. In reading these verses, it becomes apparent that Saul didn't follow the divine mandate given by Elohim to Samuel, who passed it on to Israel's first king. By not utterly destroying them, they ended up in the Persian Empire where Mordecai and Esther were. Now we are approaching into the real reason why Haman had a disdain for Mordecai and the Jews. Why did he have that disdain? What we notice in these two sets of verses is that apparently Haman knew his history. 
I've been told somewhere that it says that if we don't know our history, we're going to repeat it, be it positive or negatively. For years, no doubt, he knew of the defeat of King Agag by Samuel. He knew that. He knew the history of it. Because when something like that happens, it passes, it, it goes around and around. Trayvon Martin's case, you, you, you can speak about Trayvon Martin the next 50 years, we're going to know about that. So Haman had to know that Samuel slew Agag, and Agag was in his family. That's what his problem was. So let us notice that in <clears throat> Esther 2.5, let's go back to Esther. In Esther chapter 2 and verse 5, <clears throat> it says, now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So <clears throat> he was a Benjamite. And as a result of being a Benjamite, that meant he was a, Benjamites go back to, to, to Benjamin, and Benjamin was a son of Israel, so the Benjaminites was also Israelites. So it tells that Mordecai, he was a son of Jair, who was the son of Shimei, who was the son of Kish, which was a Benjamite, and it stops there. Okay, so when we read in Samuel and Esther, and when we look at the Benjamites, why didn't he go further than the Benjamites? For when Saul did what he did, or Samuel did what he did that Saul should have done, that was in about 10, uh, 1,000 uh, B.C., and this time of Esther's empire is around 500. So that was about a 500-year difference. So why did he stop at the Benjamites? There are at least two reasons why I believe that in the book of Esther that they stopped at Kish and goes no further. Now, the first reason why they didn't go any further than Kish was this because it takes us back to the exact time period of when Agag was put to death by Samuel. It goes right back to that time period. And secondly, it points out the people of the Jews who put Agag to death to confirm this. We now go to uh, 1 Samuel uh, 9, 1. And when we go to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1, notice what it says. It said, now there was a man of the Benjamites whose name was Kish. Hmm? Isn't that the same Kish we've been talking about? The son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bishoreth, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Okay. Now that, that, that Benjamite had a son. And who was his son? It was Saul, and he became the first king of Israel. And verse 3 of 1 Samuel 9, 3 says, uh, well, 9, 2 says, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly. And there was among the children of Israel, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he from the shoulders upward, 
he was higher than any of the people. So here we are given a more of the lineage of Mordecai. He was from the Benjamites. And by being from the Benjamites, the writer took us exactly during the time period when Agag was taken out. Now, when it says Kish was a Benjamite, it goes on to say this Benjamite whose name was Kish, it goes on through his family tree even further, but in the book of Esther, it stops. This same Kish had a son whose name was Saul. So Israel, <clears throat> who under Saul's reign had Agag killed, and Haman, no doubt, was well aware of this. This was his secret silence of which he got a chance. He would get revenge not only on the Benjamites, but also upon all the Jews who was a part of Israel. And what happened to the king, Agag, he was going to make sure that those who took out the Agagites, that he would do the same thing to them. Now that the king Ahasuerus had promoted him to the second top position in the Persian Empire, he now had power to do something about it. What do you do when all society is against you? Esther, what do you do? What do you do? When you're back against the wall and you don't know what to do, what do you do? They say in, ba in, in baseball, I think it was uh, Don Newcomb. They said Don Newcomb, oh, Don Newcomb was pitching a game and I, he was doing good. And Don Newcomb began to get tired and from the dugout, they said, they said, Don, pitch. They said, pitch. They said, pitch that ball. Pitch it. And Don held up that ball. And, and, and Don Newcomb, he was so tired. He didn't know. He, he was trying to get strength from somewhere to throw that ball. And so Don Newcomb hollered back to the dugout and said, he said, how can I when I can't? And sometimes in life, you struggle hard as you can, but how can you when you can't? How can you? But Esther, notice what the Bible says. In Esther chapter 4, it says here, it says, Then Esther bade him, Mordecai, the answer. She said, Go gather together all the Jews that are in present in Shushan, and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day, I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So our fourth point is, uh, yeah, our fourth point is simply this. What Esther did, she had what we call a secret service. What was that secret service? We must understand what we must understand is that when we seem all alone and we are and yet we aren't alone when it seems that no one is there 
There is somebody there. Esther had what we call a secret service. When Yeshua was here on earth, he taught us about the secret service of which Esther told Mordecai and her people engaged in. The secret service was whenever you were having a difficult task, no matter what it is and what the challenge is and what the problems are, the secret service is fasting and prayer. This was a secret service. Sometimes the law system is not going to work for you. Sometimes your neighbors are not going to do you well. Sometimes your family may even turn their back on you. But if you got that secret service going in prayer and fasting, sometimes you can break the curse that is on you. We as a church must understand that we have to bear the burden of souls and not just leave it to the clergy to do all of the work of trying to get souls. Pastors need help. Even though Esther was the queen leader, she couldn't do it by herself. She said, I and my maids, we're going to fast and pray for three days. And then she said, Mordecai, you get the other Jews to fast and pray for three days. Oh, we need to get to church to fast and to pray. Uh, what is the church facing today? Why can't the church, with all of the people that we got around the world, why can't the church get together and a fast? for three days and three nights and see what God would do. But we look at problems and go on like the problems ought to be there. But God just gives us a problem like Andre Krauss said, to know that he can solve them. And so what we find here is that the church needs to combine hands with the leaders so that we can get the work done. We could stop all of the male treatment of people and find security in our creator and maker, Yeshua, our Messiah, and our Heavenly Father. Every problem we face is a call to prayer, and every frustration is a call to fasting. God says she had a secret service, and when she had that secret service, what happened? Bible says here, she says in verse 16, she said at the latter part, when you do your part of fasting and praying and lifting the burdens of the church and lifting the burden off of me and lifting the burden that is so heavy, she said, I'm going to the king. And if I perish, I perish. You know, sometimes when you pray and fast about a certain situation, you can't walk by faith. You just got to say, if I perish, I perish. But you're going to walk by faith. And when you take that walk of faith, you have what you call a secret setup. Number, 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 uh, number six, I believe, is a secret setup. When they had prayed and fasted three days, <clears throat> something took place. I just don't think that an entire Jewish empire could go without food or for three days and three nights and pray and praise our Elohim that he wouldn't that he wouldn't show up and show out. Even though Elohim's name isn't mentioned in the entire book of Esther, Esther has to work, walk by faith and not by sight. She said, after her three days of fast, I will go in to the king, and if I perish, I perish. What we want to notice are the events which took place after they fasted. Elohim strategically laid out events in such a way that we can see a divine hand at work. 
Let's land the events which took place after prayer and fasting. Immediately do we see Elohim at work when Esther approaches the king. Before she put on her royal clothes, she was a citizen. And that's what you call citizenship. After she put on a royal apparel that was queenship, when she entered the court of the king, that was courtship. When she touched the golden scepter in his hand, that was rulership. When she was offered half the kingdom, that was stewardship. And then he said to Esther, what is it that you want? Anything that you want, I give it to you. That was what you call ownership. Now let us notice how strategically Elohim arranged these things. We go to our last point. Number six is a secret setup. Let us look at how Elohim orchestrated things. We call this the secret setup. It was a sacred because Elohim was behind the scenes uh, setting things up. Let us notice how strategically he works out every detail. First, when Esther comes to the king, she says uh, to him, after fasting for three days and three nights, she was weak. She says that I have a banquet and I want you to come to the banquet with me. And then not only do I want you to come to the banquet with me, but I want also Haman to come to the banquet. And then when they got to the banquet, the Bible says that King says to Esther, honey, what is it that you want? I will give you half my kingdom. And the Bible says that she said, yes, there's something that I want, King, but I want to have another banquet tomorrow. Oh, can't you see how he is sitting things up? He can sit it up and he can work it out. And the Bible says that when Haman left the first banquet, he went home, and when he went home, he was talking to Zeresh, his wife, and his friends. And he said, you know, uh, I'm somebody important. The king and the queen, they invited me to a banquet that nobody else could come to. He said, and I am elated about that, but it's one thing that I can't stand, and that's Haman in the gate. And they said to Haman, they said, well, why don't you do that? You're number two in the kingdom. Why don't you build a gallows and hang him on it? And gallows uh, was made by Haman, and he intended to slay him. But that was when Haman had gone home. But after the first banquet, the Bible says that King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. Because he couldn't sleep, he said, bring me the book of the records of the chronology. And when he started reading in the book of the chronology, the Holy Ghost got a hold of his mind, and he went through the pages, and when he went through, he said, wait a minute. There are two men that try to take my life. And when they try to take my life, that man that was sitting out there on the ground like a beggar, he's the one that gave word to save me. And since he saved me, I'm going to save him. And the Bible says, when the next day came, Mordecai came in, and it says that Ahasuerus said to his servants, 
what has been done for this man who saved my life? And the servant said, nothing has been done. He says, and all of a sudden he heard somebody in the court. And so Ahijah says, who's in the court? And the servant says, Haman's in the court. He said, bring Haman in here. Now Haman is coming in with Mordecai on his mind to kill him. But Ahijah had him on his mind to give him something that was kind. And as a result, when he got there, he wanted to tell Ahijah, I have a gallows built and I want you to kill or hang Mordecai on the gallows. But when they came face to face, the Holy Ghost got on Ahasuerus and he out-talked Haman and he says, what shall we do with the man that the king favors? And so Haman, who had his mind on Mordecai's death, was changed because the Holy Ghost worked with his mind and he said, well, if the king's going to favor somebody, who other than me would he be favoring? And that's what got him in the, in the problem in the first place. He had his, too much of his man on himself. So he said, well, I must be the man. He said, well, king, uh, the man that you honor, you ought to put your royal clothes on him, let him ride on the king's horse, put the king's ring on him, and take him around the empire. And king says, you know, that's a good idea. Go out there and get Haman, put him on my horse, put royal apparel on him, and put my ring on his finger and ride him around. And he got him and he rode him around. And then he was so humiliated, he ran back to his family. And when he ran back to his family, uh, he told him, he said, uh, what the king had done. And so Zeresh and his friend said, Haman, you're on the way down. Mm. You're on the way down, Haman. Because if that Jew, Mordecai, gets up there where you are, he says, they're going to take you out. And so the Bible says that Esther was getting ready for the next banquet. And as she was getting ready for the next ban banquet, what happened was they said, go get Haman. And they rushed Haman in. And when they got Haman in and they started to have the banquet and Haman said to his lovely queen, what is it that you want? She says that, that me and my people are... Uh, up against genocide. They're about to exterminate us. He said, well, who's the enemy? She said, this wicked Haman, he's the enemy. And the king looked at him and he walked out into the garden. And when he walked out into the garden, they tell me that Haman fell on the bed and was pleading for his life. Esther, please, please. And when the king came in, he saw him on the bed with Esther. And no sooner he got the words out of his mouth, they covered Haman's face and they took him out. And they said, as they took him out, we can hang him on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Haman had to understand what you lay down, you'll have to pick up. What goes up must come down. What goes around will come around. You can get over, but you won't get by. You can make your bed, but you have to sleep in it. Uh, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, you shall reap. Mm -hmm. You, you, you were trying to bring him down. You're bringing yourself down. Whatever you do to bring others down, it's going to come around back to you. What we must understand is that when we pray and fast, Elohim shows up. And when he shows up, he shows out. 
The Jews were to be exterminated on the 13th of the 12th month of Adar. However, when our Elohim shows up, he didn't change the calendar. He changed the command. He didn't change the old law of the Medes and the Persians. He constructed a new law of the Medes and the Persians. He didn't change the death decree. He gave them a deliverance decree. If there is anything that we can learn from the book of Esther, it is that when our Savior shows up, he shows out. He has a silent shout. He may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. He showed up for Moses when he prayed, and he showed out by opening and dividing the waters of the Red Sea, and they stood on both sides and shook like jello. He showed up for Joshua when he marched around the walls of Jericho, and he showed out by using the sound of the shofar to corrupt, to crumble the walls and let them crack like a cracker. I said, when Elohim shows up, he shows out. He showed up for the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, and he showed out by taking the furnace and making it out of an air condition. He showed up for Daniel in the lion's den, and when he showed out, by having the lions to fast along with Daniel and Darius. He showed up for Elijah when he prayed for rain, and he showed out by telling Ahab to go and get your raincoat and your umbrella. It's going to rain. He showed up for Elijah when he prayed to open his servant's eyes. He showed out by anointing his servant's eyes to be able to see that there was more with them than with the enemy that was around him. He showed up when Paul and Silas prayed and praised Elohim in jail, and he showed out by using the earthquake as a key to open the bars of the jail. He showed up when Peter was incarcerated and was surrounded by 16 guards, and he showed out by having young believer like Rhoda to tell the church their prayers had been answered. I tell you, beloved, Brothers and sisters, they had to understand that when our Savior shows up, he will show out. When Yeshua shows up, he'll show out. They are killing us in the streets today, but when Yeshua comes, instead of them having their knee on our neck, they'll be going to be a reverse curse. You'll get us today, but we'll get you tomorrow. I will also laugh at your calamity, Elohim says. But when you have your time of trouble, I'm going to mock you. When Yeshua comes a second time, all of those who have lived according to his covenant and died unjustly will be resurrected to see an eternal existence. Because when Yeshua comes, he is going to show up. And when he shows up, he's going to show out our loving Heavenly Father as we walk through difficult days and times of trouble. We're scared, oh, Heavenly Father, of the coronavirus and all of this that is going on. Help us to put a good, solid trust in you. Because when you show up, you're going to show out. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen and amen. Amen.